Wizards of the Coast announces a D&D after-school program. We're going to talk more about which tools better support Wizards plus third-party content for character creation. I'm going to offer tips for sharing third-party material with your players. And we're going to cover more of the September 2022 Patreon questions from the Patreon Q&A. I'm your pal, Mike Shea from Sly Flourish, here to talk to you about all things D&D. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want access to exclusive material to help you run awesome D&D games, a dedicated Discord channel, and to get your questions in the monthly Q&A thread, you can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes below. Patrons also help me put on shows like this, so to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. Last week, Wizards of the Coast made an announcement they sent out a press release about a new after-school program that they have going on. There is a link on the D&D website about how to get access to this if you are an educator. There is a classroom curriculum that talks about how Dungeons & Dragons is really a great activity for children. I can't I can't agree more. There's also an after-school kit. If you are a group that is running an after-school game, you can get a copy of Dragons of Stormwreck Isle, the starter set, plus instructions, demos, easy-to-use character cards, other material that Wizards of the Coast has provided to schools so that that they can run this. You can ask for this by going to their service request portal. Instructions are all on this website and you can find a link in the show notes below. I think it's really fantastic. I think that getting the next generation to play D&D a, it's really fun. We all love it, obviously. We're not just playing it because it's some agenda of ours that we want other people to do it. We love it. We think this game is great. And I think more people want to do it. And I think if fifth edition of D&D has showed us anything, it's that this edition, that this game is not just meant for people who grew up in the 80s and 90s, which is the common misconception. This is something that I remember during the fourth edition of D&D, my friends and I, all these people at these conventions would talk about how everybody there were like baby boomers and Gen X, that we were all, you know, in our 30s and 40s. And we're like, this, this game is going to die with us. Everyone else is going to be playing massive online games or mobile games. And we're the last ones to play D&D. And boy, did the fifth edition prove that was wrong. And now it's tremendously popular and many young people are playing D&D. Many, it has definitely, the majority of people playing D&D now are like below the age of 30. It's fantastic. So that is a tremendous thing. And this is just a great way to not just help that along, but to, to, to really, to, to benefit the kids who want to play D&D. So I'm very excited to see this. And, and I hope if you work in education, if you're running an after-school program, make sure to check this page out. Check it out in the show notes below. Click, tell them about what kind of club you're running it for and get some of this free stuff. I think it, I think it is fantastic. I'm very, very excited to see it. They even have a video on this page that talks about running a Dungeons & Dragons after-school program. Really, really good thing that Wizards of the Coast is doing. I highly, I'm, I'm very happy to see it. Last week, I talked about feelings that I had that are the the reliance that many people have on D&D Beyond was actually hurting D&D as a larger hobby. That was my that was kind of my hypothesis. Is the growing reliance on D&D Beyond hurting this hobby more than it is helping? And I talked about how it mattered it, it, what, what matters in the larger industry doesn't bother me as much as what matters when we're running our individual groups. And in my case, my group, the, de the, the dependence is a strong word, but the drive to use D&D Beyond for my own group meant that it was more difficult for me to run with third-party character material from, in this case, Kobold Press. I was running an Empire of the Ghouls. I am running an Empire of the Ghouls campaign. I wanted to use 
new class material from Tome of Heroes and from the Midgard Heroes Handbook, but my players were still interested in using D&D Beyond because they're used to using it. They like it very much. And we found that difficult. Players were picking options that weren't available in the in the set of books that we chose. And, and it was just harder to get characters that, that worked well because some of the material wasn't available in there. So I ran a poll that said, like, how many people use D&D Beyond? And the general result from that poll was about half of those groups of, of the people that I surveyed said that they are using D&D Beyond, which means D&D Beyond is very popular. I would suggest it is probably the most popular electronic program to support D&D. I think, I think that's pretty safe to say. And that means that if it was hard to incorporate third-party products that this this made it overall more difficult it's a fantastic program do not get me wrong the reason why it's as popular as it is is because it works really well people like it my players like it i like it i use it all the time it's a really really excellent way to build a character to roll dice however it has two issues that make it difficult as a resilient program as as a as a as an application to make the hobby stronger i think it in some cases makes it weaker and the two things it does that i that i suggest to make it weaker one is that it doesn't allow third-party products you cannot bring outside books third-party books in which means it only uses wizards of the coast books and two it makes programmatically it makes the assumption you're going to use everything it doesn't let you atomically select which options you want to have available for your campaign or for your character. For example, you can't say, yes, even though I own Tasha's and Xanathar's, I don't want to use those books. I only want to use the player's handbook. Or I only want to use the player's handbook plus Mystic, Mythic Odyssey of Theros. You can't do that. Instead, there's loose ones that say, like, do you want magic stuff or do you want critical role stuff? But there's really no way to select individual sources to say, when I'm building this character, I want to use just the player's handbook and I want to use volo's guide or i want to use the player's handbook and monsters of the multiverse but nothing else and what that means is is as a dm i know i like to select different sources for different campaigns to give that campaign a general feeling it also helps make sure that all the characters don't feel the same from one campaign to the next if you always say we're going to use the player's handbook xanathar's and tasha's Generally speaking, you're going to see a lot of the same subclasses. You're going to see a lot of the same spells because there are some that are just better than others. And when, when the classes and the subclasses and the powers and the feats and the spells, when some of them are better than others, you're just going to see them a lot. So instead, I want to say, no, let's try some stuff from these other sources that we don't typically use. And let's turn off some of the sources we're used to using often, like Xanathar's Guide. You say, if we're not going to use Xanathar's Guide, we're not going to use spells or subclasses from Xanathar's Guide, but we are going to use them from this other book. So that's that's one big problem is there is no way to turn on and off the individual sources when you're building characters in D&D Beyond. The second problem is there's no good way to easily incorporate third party material into your D&D Beyond game. Now, last week, I made the statement that, that it, it's questionable whether or not you can put third party material into D&D Beyond at all. What I learned and, and, and I saw posts that third party publishers had put out. And, and like MCDM said this, Cobalt Press has said this. I, I've seen some other groups that say this. And basically what they say is you can put character options from third party books into D&D Beyond. You just only can share it with you and your group. You cannot make it a public thing, which means you can't just go and look for the Cobalt Press stuff that other people have done and add that Cobalt Press stuff in. The reality is it's there, but you can't really trust it. You don't know. And they shouldn't have put it there. And probably D&D Beyond should be looking for it and getting rid of it because that, that kind of material shouldn't be there. So it's either A, hard to find, or B, not correct anyway. You shouldn't be using it. But that means if you do take something like Toma Heroes, and if a player picks an option from Toma Heroes, they can make a homebrew customization in D&D Beyond with that stuff from Toma Heroes and add it to their character. They can even share 
share it with other players in that game. They just can't make it public. That's great. And that's that's definitely a way to share third-party material that makes it easier than I was making it out to be last week. It's still not easy. It's still not like you go and you say, oh, I want Tomohiro's and I'm going to add Tomohiro's stuff in. The other thing that I hadn't really thought about, though, is how much of this is a Mike Shea problem and how much of it is a general problem. And I'm, you know, I'm problems for me, I'll just deal, I'll deal with. But is it a problem for other people? And the answer is probably not. It's probably not that big a deal for most people for a couple of reasons. One is I imagine most people who use D&D Beyond really don't care about whether or not they're using third party material or not. They probably also might not care about limiting source material. They're happy to use whatever's in D&D Beyond. And talking to a bunch of friends of mine, they all generally said, yeah, we don't really care. And the other one is that other half of the people who don't use D&D Beyond have lots of other tools that they're using where this isn't a problem. The biggest one is Roll20. So Roll20 does have first-party products and third-party products. They have Wizards of the Coast products. They have they have they are only one of two companies that has a legitimate license to include Wizards of the Coast books on their platform. The other one being Fantasy Grounds. You can go and you can buy Wizards of the Coast official books on Roll20, and you can buy books from third, many, many third-party publishers, Cobalt Press, MCDM, lots of groups are putting third-party books up there. And that means you can actually build characters that have material from both sources. And in Roll20, I went and tried this out. I had lots of people who helped me out. Lots of people left comments that talked about how to do this. And I talked to a lot of people about how to do this. I got, I had people that invited me to games to, sh- to show me how it worked. And what I saw was that both DMs and players can select which sources they want to use for character creation and can include material from both Wizards of the Coast and third-party stuff into their character creation. And in Roll20 is known as the Character Mancer. And you can go through the Character Mancer, add these new features, add these new functions. Now, in some cases, it won't update the math for you. So if you add like the toughness feat, for example, you still have to increase your hit points. It won't do it automatically. And obviously it makes sense that material from third-party stuff isn't going to modify the math on the character sheet, but you can at least track it on the character sheet. And that's pretty good. Playing around with Roll20, that showed me that if you want to include material from Wizards of the coast and material from third-party publishers and you want an electronic platform you don't want to do it by hand on paper roll 20 is probably the strongest and most popular way to do it the the other company that does this very well is fantasy grounds so fantasy grounds is probably the second most popular virtual tabletop although somebody might somebody could probably argue that foundry is also really popular they are the only other company that i know of that has a legitimate license to sell Wizards of the Coast, Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition books on their platform. And like Roll20, you can buy material from Wizards of the Coast and third-party material, much of which is available. Again, Cobalt Press's material is on, on there. And in the character sheet on Fantasy Grounds, you can include which sources you want to include information from. I did not try that out myself. The big difference between Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds, Roll20 is completely web-based and has a free tier. It's free for DMs. It's free for players. Only when you start buying products or only if you want some of the added functions do you have to pay fantasy grounds you have to buy a client you sometimes the dm can buy the client outright and share it with their players other times they can sign up for a monthly license where they can share it with their players or individual players and individual dms can either buy their own local client or subscribe so there's a bunch of different subscription models for fantasy grounds but it's expensive it's not nearly i mean it's not free so it's infinitely more expensive than Roll20 can be. But it is also a client-based software package. It is not web-based. You need to have a PC or a Mac. You need to install the software on your PC or Mac. But it probably main, makes... I have not spent a lot of time with Fantasy Grounds, so I'm kind of speaking out of turn on this. My understanding is that Fantasy Grounds 
definitely has like a smoother user interface for all of this stuff because it isn't web-based. It's all local client stuff. So it runs a little bit smoother than the completely web-based platform of Roll20. People can definitely argue back and forth. They're both very popular tools. So really you can take a look at them and, and decide which one, one you want to use. Matt Colville actually did a whole video about how he uses Fantasy Grounds. You can find a link to that video in the show notes below if you want to take a look at Fantasy Grounds. Now, there are two other virtual tabletops that have a fifth edition based rule set built into them and have ways to incorporate fifth edition material but these other two do not have an official way to do it instead they have kind of an interesting way that they can pull data from dnd beyond and that is shard and foundry foundry is definitely a high up-and-comer in the virtual tabletop world the people that like foundry really love it it builds a really big sort of multimedia display to run your game it's got rain effects it's got lighting effects it's got sound effects it's got whole kinds of ways to really make your DD game your this, this game that you run a true multimedia experience i have friends who love foundry to death they really think it's great it is also a single client purchase you buy it and you run it now unlike roll 20 for the dm it is a local client piece of software but unlike fantasy grounds for the players it is web-based so essentially when you buy your local client you become the web server that serves out the game to your players it's a direct client to you know server client relationship between you and your players not going to any kind of centralized server like roll 20 or fantasy grounds does interesting way that they have to to incorporate third-party content into foundry so once again foundry you can go and you can buy lots of third-party content you cannot buy wizards of the coast books directly However, there are tools, there is middleware that people have created that let you go to your D&D Beyond page and download material directly from D&D Beyond into Foundry. And my understanding is you can do this with characters, you can do it with spells, monsters, you can do it with lots of different features that you're essentially pulling down. Now, the argument is, oh my God, how is that legal? Well, one for one thing, Wizards of the Coast has not hit them with a cease and desist on this. So one would think they would because Foundry is very big. So if it was really a big problem, they would. But the other one is you have to have an account with D&D Beyond to have that material in the first place. So it's really not much different than as, as though Foundry was acting like a web browser, pulling down the data just like you would if you were hitting it on a browser. So it feels like it's pretty legitimate to me. It feels like it's not, I don't think it's a violation of a term of service. I don't think it's a violation of a EULA that, that I understand, but I know that it, this software has been up and running now for some time and there has been no cease and desist for it. But it isn't an official connection, which makes it a little bit cagier than what you're doing with like Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds. But again, it seems to work really well. People really like it. And so that's a, another way that you can take material from Wizards of the Coast through this plugin and mix it with third-party stuff that you are legitimately purchasing through Foundry directly. The same is also true with Shard. So Shard is all a completely web-based solution. Shard is relatively new and it is a fifth edition based virtual tabletop that is built for ease of use. I haven't spent a lot of time in it. One interesting note is Shard is the only platform currently where you can get Ruins of the Grendel Root in a full version. And that's because the people from Shard came to me and said, hey, we'd really like to do it. And I said, sure. And so they just did it. It was zero effort for me. So that made it really easy to do. But they have lots of third-party content. Cobalt Press really likes them. A lot of all the Cobalt Press content is up on Shard. And Shard also has a way to at least import characters from D&D Beyond. It can pull a character sheet from D&D Beyond. I don't know if it does spells. I don't know if it does monsters. I don't know if it does other features, but you can at least pull your your D&D Beyond character sheet down. Now, once you've made modifications to your D&D character sheet 
on shard it doesn't get pushed back up again so like you can basically manipulate it in shard pull it down and then modify it with third-party content i also don't know how well integrated the third-party material is so that you can add new features from tome heroes and stuff like that you would probably be better off i don't i don't exactly know how it would work with shard if you had material that wasn't part of the fifth edition srd the the, the system resource document essentially the material from fifth edition that everybody has access to I don't know how easily you could incorporate stuff like say you wanted to have Xanathar material from Xanathar's guide and material from Tome of Heroes. I don't know how well that works together in Shard. I have not I have not experimented with that enough. But those are always. So what that means is this is the other half of the U. If you really are were like in my case and said people want to have digital tools to manage their characters and you want to include material from both wizards of the coast and third parties these are four options and you can kind of pick which one you want to use which ones you think fits you best roll 20 is probably the most popular one where you can see how this stuff works together and all of these four have the benefit of a virtual tabletop as well like a way to actually share your stuff so why is this not why mike shea why is your problem why come you don't go this and the reason why is like i'll be honest my stack really when i complained about not being able to easily incorporate third-party material is because it didn't support my stack of software and the stack of software that i use to run my games typically when i'm running online are discord for audio and video which you use with any of these I love Albert Rodeo for virtual tabletops because it's so fast and so easy to set up. I don't really have to worry about a lot. I just put up a map, get tokens on it, and I'm done. And I like D&D Beyond. And so by when I was using that stack of software that worked really, really well, as long as I'm just using what's in D&D Beyond. But the minute I say, oh, but I also want to use Tome Heroes, now I got problems because now I can't just use D&D Beyond. Probably I should have said like, you know what? We're going to switch over to use Roll20. We're all going to get used to using Roll20. I think Roll20, the issue I have with Roll20 not to not to complain, but I'm going to complain a little bit about Roll20. Why why doesn't Mike just immediately jump over to Roll20? First of all, it's really good. It's been around forever. Millions of people use it. Literally millions of people use Roll20. If you go to any sort of online games, if you want to see like Adventures League games, almost all of them are being run in Roll20. So once DMs get used to it, once they understand it, once DMs and players understand the software and how it works and how it operates, it's very smooth and it works very well. But there's a couple couple of things. One is it's the software is pretty old. It's been built over a long period of time, and it kind of you can kind of tell. There's a lot of weird, quirky things. It's kind of hard to figure out how to do stuff. Hard to figure out like how do I level up my character like i had to hunt around to figure out how to go to the character mancer to level up a character again there's a lot of like odd little bits there's there's many times where i've run roll 20 and i couldn't figure out if it was i'd hit a problem and i couldn't figure out is it because i'm not doing it right or is there a bug and it was really hard to figure out no sometimes it's just a bug sometimes it's not my fault like there's this weird thing where i can't get my character's initiative to ever show up in the initiative board i always have to do it manually i don't know why none of the dms i've ever worked with could tell me why but for some reason my initiative doesn't go over my wife's does everyone else's does mine doesn't i don't know why really weird stuff so every so often you hit stuff like that roll 20 is complex all of these virtual tabletops are complicated pieces of software they require a big investment of your time and energy to learn how they work and you get wrapped around that investment. It means that once you've spent that time, once you've gotten used to these pieces of virtual, of, of virtual software, you tend to want to stick with them because that's a big investment. That might even be a bigger investment than the money you've spent on them, though the money's not insignificant once you start buying third-party products for these, for these tools because none of them transfer over, right? They all stick with their, their own platform. 
So that means that the people who have used Roll20 for a long time really like Roll20. The same is true for every one of these virtual tabletops. Once a DM and once a group gets used to a set of virtual tabletop, once they get used to a single virtual tabletop and the suite of software wrapping around it, they tend to want to stay with it because it's a big investment to switch, both financially and in time and in energy and in money. And that was my problem. I have my own stack that I really like, which was D&D Beyond, Discord, Albert Rodeo. That, that's my stack of software. And then suddenly it couldn't do what I wanted it to do. And there wasn't a good way to do it. And I've struggled with it. So that's where it's this really thin margin. That's why my problem is really not probably a problem for most people. Because you either love D&D Beyond and you're really just using what Wizards of the Coast publishes anyway. So who cares? Or you're like, no, I like third-party products, but I use Roll20 I use Roll and I'm happy over there. So that's that's really that's really what's interesting. So I wanted, I don't know if that, clar- I think that clarified some stuff. That basically says the world isn't as fragile as I had made it out to be last week because we do have a number of different online tools, you know, five big ones that I'm just talking about. You have the stack that I just talked about, D&D Beyond, Albert Rodeo, and Discord. And of course, Discord you can use with any of them, so that kind of doesn't count because lots of people use Discord even though they're using these other tools too. Roll20, Fantasy Grounds, Shard, and Foundry. And there's other ones too. Yeah, I didn't talk about Tailspire. I didn't talk about some other virtual tabletops that do some other things. But when it comes to being able to incorporate third-party material, these seem like the big ones these seem like the 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 four big virtual tabletops that that support third-party material well and integrated into fifth edition are roll 20 fantasy grounds foundry and shard g blaster in twitch says that they really are hoping the new wizards of the coast dnd beyond virtual tabletop is good please let it be good i agree i really want it to be good i think it'll be great if it's well integrated with dnd beyond everything's cool you have this really nice platform it's really fun that's great but also it's important to make sure that our hobby is not so fragile that if it's not good we're hosed i think we're in a pretty good spot where whatever Wizards of the Coast decides to, to do with, with the new version of D&D, but also with their virtual tabletops and all that stuff, all it can do is make it better. We don't want to put ourselves in a situation where it can make it worse. We don't want a situation where it makes our games worse. And that's what I worry about when we get when we rely on any one tool to do this. In fact, I talked about how we all get used to our own stack. It's probably worth us experimenting with the other stuff and trying it out to make sure if my stack no longer supports the kind of game I want to run, I want to be able to switch to another stack. I think the main point that I want to make with this whole conversation is that we have lots of options available to us that I I have lots of of options available to me. We have at least five different stacks of software that we can use to run D&D online. And that's not even including using physical books and paper character sheets. And I have players who are doing that. So that is an option as well. And that option is very, very flexible. There's, There's nothing that can happen to that. But even still, we have all of these different platforms. And I'm definitely not covering other platforms that we have. Those are not the only ones by far. There's other ways that you can mix and match different software together to run D&D online or to even run digital parts of your D&D game at your physical table. So we have all of those options. And that was something that this past week, thinking a lot about this topic has has taught me. There was another aspect to this conversation that I wanted to talk about as well. Something that had occurred to me when I was thinking about this, which is how do we share third-party material with our players in a way that is safe and legal and cost-effective? Let's say you buy some player-focused material and you're a DM, so you often 
cover the bill for a lot of the stuff that involves in D&D. So you buy a player-driven PDF and you want to share it with the player who might actually use it. It doesn't make sense, for example, for a player to spend $30 to $50 on a PDF. I think I think in some cases you could have a player-driven book that's $30. That's asking a lot from a player. And like, now, should they be able to? Well, they get a lot of joy out of it too. And that $30 isn't really a high price and all of that. Yes, I agree. But a lot of times players, they're only going to be using like 5% of that book. They're really going to pick one subclass and a handful of spells and a handful of features maybe some background stuff they're not going to be using that whole book so to me as a dm it, it makes sense to recognize that players that it's asking a lot for players to buy physical books so the question is well how what's another way to share it well again all of the tools i just talked about roll 20 fantasy grounds shard and, and foundry if you buy books through those platforms you can share those books with your players as long as they're part of your campaign so that's one way immediately that you can go and buy one copy or get your players together. They all chip in some money. You buy a package and then you share it out with your players so that they can see it within a campaign. This is very similar to how D&D Beyond lets you share content that you purchased in D&D Beyond with your players. They have access to Xanathar's Guide. They have access to Tasha's. I experimented with this in Roll20 and it worked really well. I had a friend who added me to a campaign that they were running and included a couple source books, including a first party, I think it was Xanathar's Guide, and Tome of Heroes by Cobalt Press. And I could see how I could mix and match the components of both of those without having to pay for them. So that was really, and that's really a nice feature. But what if we don't want to do it in one platform like that? What are some other ways we can do it? So I talked about how we can do this in D&D Beyond, that you can take components, you can add components from that material into D&D Beyond, and then you can share that with your group. You don't want to make it public. If you're making it public, you're violating multiple license agreements. But if you, as long as you're not making it public, you can share it with your group. So that's one way to do it in D&D Beyond. Add the material in D&D Beyond, share it as homebrew content. But that means copying over the material that you want. I mentioned that like Roll20 and other ones have ways for you to buy the information and share it. But Roll20 now, because Roll20 is now merged with DriveThruRPG, with one bookshelf who runs DriveThruRPG, they now have a feature where you can upload a PDF and share that PDF as part of the compendium inside Roll20. So if you have a player-driven PDF, instead of having to buy a whole integrated piece, you can just share that PDF with them and they can view that PDF. And talking to people at Roll20, they say it's completely the legitimate that's our expectation it's only shared with a group so it's a limited set of people and they have agreements with the people that have licensed it to say that they are allowed to do this so that is a good one as well but what if you're not using one of these other virtual tabletops like me i have my own stack so if i was going to stay in my own stack i was going to stay using it the way i'm using it. i'm not using foundry or roll 20 or fantasy grounds or shard how can i share it well i found an interesting feature that basically does the same thing that roll 20 does only you can do it for free with google drive so you can put a PDF up on Google Drive and you can share it with people on Google Drive and you can, as long as you mark them as a viewer, not an editor, you mark them as a viewer and you go to the advanced settings on when you're sharing those files and say they can only view them. They cannot download them and they cannot print them. Over here on the side and in the show notes below, there's instructions from Google on how to do this. Essentially, you put files up in Google Drive. You can share it with a set of people. You make sure that you select them as viewers 
if they're editors, they're going to be able to do everything. So you don't want to make them an editor, but you can make them a viewer. And then you can click on the advanced settings and you can specifically say that you only that you want to turn off their ability to print and you want to turn off their ability to download it. This essentially is making it so they can only view the PDF with that link. They can only view the PDF since you've invited them specifically. So you can limit it to just the people that are in your group and they can't download it. They can't do anything else. So this is exactly what you are able to do in Roll20. I've talked to other producers at third party publishers and, and said to them, like, do you think that this is a problem? Can you see a way where this is like violating what these companies would want? And everybody generally goes, no, it looks like it's exactly the same as what you'd be able to do with Roll20. I can't imagine any company being upset with you sharing it, going through the trouble of sharing a PDF this way so that your players cannot download it. They cannot print it. That That is a legitimate way. I think more companies would be willing to do that if they thought that there was an easy way to do it. I know as a publisher myself, I would not be upset if people took material that I had and shared it with a select small number of people this way in a view only way. That would be absolutely fine with me. I'm presuming, I am making this presumption that that would also be fine with other third party producers as well. I think it is. They generally don't want you to put, just stick it up on a website and share it. And obviously, many people are probably like, I just give them the PDF. There's a couple problems with that. One is you are breaking the law. Right, you're breaking the law, and you are sharing you are you are sharing something with another player, and you don't know where it's going to go. And in many cases, these PDFs are watermarked. And do you really want to be the guy? I know I don't want to be the guy where my stuff shows up on some terrible website that's free, and it's my name at the bottom of the PDF. That would be that would be really bad. So an easier way is to make sure that you put it up on Google Drive. You invite your players to view it. You make sure that they are viewers, not editors, and you turn off permissions for printing and downloading so that they can only view it. That seems like a very reasonable way to share a PDF. It's easy to do. It's free. Whatever platform you're using, whatever your whatever your stack of software is, whether it's even even if you're just playing in person, this is a good way to say, hey, you want to have a copy of this book so you can bring it home and think about your character, read some of the information. Here's a way for you to be able to read that information without downloading a copy. And of course, if they want their own copy, they can go buy it. So I think that that's a very reasonable approach. So whatever platform you use, if you're like me and you have a lot of your material in PDFs and some of this material is stuff that the players could use in order to generate their characters, I think that this trick of using Google Drive to share the file with your players, but giving it in a way that they cannot download and they cannot print, hits both the, the moral obligation of protecting the, the, the content that we paid for, but also making it visible to the players who could actually use it. It seems like a good, reasonable way to share third-party PDFs and I, I plan to use it myself and I think it's a good approach. So I wanted to offer that up because I think it is a I think it is a valuable tip. Let's do some questions from Patreon. So every month I post a thread up on the Sly Flourish Patreon and each month patrons can put a question up related to anything going on in D&D or role-playing games. I answer every question on Patreon. Some of them I take and I bring them here to the show so that we can talk about them here on the show. So the first question is from Grim. I have just transitioned my homebrew game into Wild Beyond the Witchlight using a couple of hooks from my campaign to lead to the into the Hourglass Coven's involvement. My players are a party of six level six characters and I intend to run the whole thing at sixth to seventh level. Any tips on scaling the adventure having run it recently? I put this question question in here because I think it hits on a topic I, I like to talk about that I think is important, which is the theme of a campaign. So one thing that's important to consider with Wild Beyond the Witchlight is it starts at first level and the first half of the adventure really fits that first level, first tier 
theme very well, that you are a bunch of characters who all had something that got lost in a carnival. As you go to the carnival, you realize that the plot goes deeper. You head off into Prismere. You deal with small focus stuff, and it gets bigger and bigger as you go. And by about the time you hit fifth level is when you start to realize that the whole region and realm of Prismere is in danger because of what the Hourglass Coven has been doing and because of the events that they've done in the past. And Wild Beyond the Witchlight does a really good job of escalating the scale of the story going on to match the level of the of the characters i think a lot of dms some some do it and know that they're doing it and other dms i don't think realize it when you will sometimes have a story that just doesn't match the level of the characters. And again, I like to go with the example of you, you typically don't have level 18 characters go into a bar and the bartender says, oh man, I've got some giant rats in the basement that I have a problem with. Instead, if you have a bunch of level one characters who go to a bar and they say, hey, we'd like to get some cheese. Oh, I'm sorry. My wheel of cheese, a bunch of rats down in the basement, these giant rats, they chased my wife out. If you could go down there and take care of those giant rats, I'll give you a free wheel of cheese. Instead, the level 18 version is the characters wander into a bar. The bartender says, oh yeah you want a wheel of cheese i'd love to give you some cheese but orcus just moved into my basement he scared my wife away if you'd go down into the basement and take care of orcus for me you can have a wheel of cheese that's a good level 18 version of that of that situation and i would love i actually want to run that where you go down and there's like this hellish scape and orcus is eating a wheel of cheese like, what are you doing what are you doing down here who are you get out of here i'm eating my cheese and like give us your cheese orcus so my point is, with my little quippy story, that it's important to think about the scale of the story and how it matches the characters. And you can kind of think about this by tier. Level one is very small focus problem. It's rats in a basement. From level two to level four, what we consider to be tier one, I consider level one to be tier zero. I think it's in a different tier of its own. Level level two to level four is local problems local villages you've got you know you've got bandits on the road that are hijacking shipments you've got the band of lizard folk who are acting really cagey in the swamp nearby you have you know maybe a little incorruption oh your kid fell down a, a, into a well and there's like a crazy old tomb down there filled with skeletons you have to rescue the kid local problems fifth to tenth level are regional problems the armies that are that are coming out of the mountains that could take over the region or you know, bigger, bigger scale things, you know, that, that old castle that's filled with all the undead is beginning to grow and more and more skeletons are coming out and attacking. We have a vampire Lord who's just taken over this section. So fifth to 10th levels, regional problems, which are usually pretty decent sized problems. Those are big issues. Those are about the biggest issues. Most reasonable heroes would expect to face. Tier three is global problems. This is a giant meteor is soaring through the sky that is getting ready to crash. An evil sentient moon is coming, flying down and beginning to crash down in the landscape. How are you going to deal with this moon? It is a portal to hell has opened up and swallowed an entire city and you need to go deal with that portal to hell. You need to deal with all the demons that are coming outside of the portal to hell. There are all of the you know, global issues. What are the things that are affecting the entire globe or bigger than regional, many regional kind of problems? Problems. That's really where you get into tier three. And tier four is planar. Tier four is you're going into the abyss. You're going into the nine hells. You're going into the outside. Now, granted, you can have adventures. Planescape is an adventure, an, 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 an example of where you have an adventure where characters are going extra planar pretty, pretty early. But generally speaking, you can think of those big tiers. What are the local, regional, global, and worldly, uh, otherworldly problems? 
So I bring this up with Witchlight because Witchlight really covers that tier one to tier two transition really well. It starts off with local problems. You've lost stuff. You're going to a carnival because eight years ago you lost some stuff. And then it becomes regional. Hey, this whole world, this whole area of Prismere is beginning to fall apart. If you're starting it at seventh, sixth to seventh level, it needs to already be the regional problem. Like having a lost thing, a lost item probably isn't enough. You're going to want to turn that dial fast. That's where idea of dreadful incursions, this idea that other worlds are bleeding into this one can definitely get you from a sixth, from like a tier two to even a tier three adventure, because now you're dealing with multiple worlds collapsing. It could destroy all of the Feywild. It might destroy everything. You could take that to tier four. But instead of worrying so much about how to scale an adventure up for higher levels, which is generally like pick monsters, pick bigger monsters or, or use or reskin bigger monsters and stuff like that. Think more about the bigger story that's going on and how the scale of that story is going to grow because the characters are those higher levels. That might not be the kind of answer you wanted when you asked this question, but I think it's the kind of answer I want to give because I think DMs could do more work thinking about the larger story and the scope of that story and how it fits the growth of the characters as they get higher in level. Dean L says, when do you think it is inappropriate for a monster to attack a downed, downed players? Well, down, not, I assume you mean downed characters. I always used to say that it depends on the monster's intelligence as to whether or not they would do so. But thinking on it recently, I don't know if more or less intelligent creatures would be more or less prone to attacking unconscious BCs. I feel like I could justify both a wolf and a lich taking either action. How do you usually determine if it's time to hit an unconscious PC? I usually avoid doing so unless the monster has no other obvious actions. This is a good example where I, I've brought up this idea of staying true to the situation in a game, but also not forgetting about the fact that we're playing a game for fun. And there's there, and how do you balance those two things? And we start with asking what makes sense for the situation. Non-intelligent creatures, and it's always based on circumstances. You're right that you could justify a lich or a wolf attacking, but the situation is there. Is that wolf next to a downed character and there's no other hostile threats around it? It's probably gonna keep attacking that downed character. It's hungry, it's a wolf. That lich, on the other hand, if the lich is really busy, might not have time to hit the downed character, but the lich is almost certain to know that a downed character is not a dead character and that they can be healed. So the lich is more likely to say, no, I want to keep that downed character down and dead and make sure that they stay dead. So there's definitely ways where you say like the circumstances of the situation could determine if they're going to attack some intelligent, a lot of creatures, if they're being attacked by something else might be distracted from the fact that they are attacking the downed character, but we can use that to our advantage to add some tension. And this is where it bleeds over into the question of fun. What, whether you decide if you decide to have a monster attack a downed character, I would definitely telegraph the fact that you're that that's the case. And I would do so with enough time and with, with enough turns ahead that the players can make new choices about how they're going to react to this to help prevent that from happening. So if you have a thug who knocks out a character and they're standing above and they're gloating, I would and, and their turn is over, I would have them say they look down and they raise their club above getting ready to brain the character on the ground very likely killing them and i would have them do it at the end of their turn so the characters have an entire round to stop that thug from killing that character that the interesting thing there is you're, you're projecting it so you know nobody could say oh you didn't we had no idea you were going to kill a character that way and 
it changes the tactics and the strategy because the players probably already had a bunch of things they were planning on doing where they were going to go attack another they were going to use some optimal thing against another but now they can't they actually sometimes would have to take an opportunity attack to get over to them in order to heal them or they're going to have to burn their whole round dumping a healing potion on them or they're going to have to go and like stop that person from doing it they're going to have to do other actions so that idea of like rescuing a character who's down is a good way to shake up the tactics of a situation but you can't shake up the tactics if you don't make it clear to the players that it's happening and the way to do that is as soon as you realize that that's the circumstance you would want to telegraph that through the story so that the players recognize oh my god they're gonna go kill that character over there if we don't do something and give them some room to do it because the other part is like if you don't do that and you kill characters what's the player supposed to do go downstairs and play playstation while the rest of you are playing DD? that that's always my issue with killing characters is not so much about like oh they're so sad that their character is dead or anything like that it's like what do you do with the player because the player's still sitting at your table running to play DD and they can't so that's really where you want to think like how are we going to deal with this situation so that player can still play even if i kill their character and do, do i want to change the circumstances around so that maybe something like that doesn't happen steven says as you've evolved and gotten more experienced what advice from the lazy dm returns from i assume you mean return of the lazy dungeon master have you most regretted giving or at least has changed the most substantially I, I i think i've answered a question like this before i'll answer it again i don't know that i mean this sounds pretentious and egotistical so so pardon me for this Unlike the original Lazy Dungeon Master, when I went from the Lazy Dungeon Master to Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, there were definitely parts of the original book that I thought were, I, I don't want to say disingenuous, but were making a false view of what you could possibly do. In, in that book, I said that you could prep your game in 15 minutes with three index cards. I don't even think that's true anymore. And I don't, I don't do that. Is it possible you could? It's possible, but that's not likely so that's why in, in return of the lazy dungeon master the steps are expanded a significant number to eight steps instead of the three that we had in the original lazy dungeon master people still like the lazy dungeon master they still like the philosophies i still like it but really that's one where i'm like that advice doesn't really sit as well with me as it did the advice in return of the lazy dungeon master there's nothing that i look at it in and say oh yeah that was a mistake or no that really doesn't work that way i use it all the time i use it for my own games and and I, I had used that stuff for my own games for a long time but also i've talked to lots and lots and lots of people who also use it or at least use good pieces and parts for it and remember the return of the lazy dungeon master is all about flexibility you pick the steps you want you omit the steps you don't there's whole chapters on making this your style it's really hard to be wrong if you're saying you can use what you want and throw away the rest well that's you know i i the book promotes the idea that you are continually experimenting and trying new steps and trying new things that work for you so it's it's hard to be wrong and, and have something like that in there there's one thing i would do differently if i were writing it again and if i do write something like that again or i write i i, I create a new thing that that uses a lot of that same stuff or something like that which i probably will in the next few years the the one thing I would change is some of the jargon. And I think I've talked about this on the show before. I wouldn't use the idea of fronts anymore. I talk about the idea of fronts. And fronts was a concept that I took from Apocalypse World and from Dungeon World to mean any sort of antagonistic entity, whether it is a physical force or whether it's people that are working against the plots of the characters or that are, are moving things forward. The idea of a front is it's moving forward and the characters have to deal with it. I think it's a lot easier to just talk about villains. So I would probably get rid of the, that jargon in particular and talk about villains which i've been doing recently i talk about the idea of having three villains in your game giving those villains a goal and giving them three quests some other advice that i would probably change in fantastic locations 
uh, I, I say that you should have like three aspects. Again, I use a lot of jargon. And the, that jargon comes from fate. And the idea of an aspect is like a description of a location. What, what is like a, a one word or two word description of a location? And I suggested that for every location that you have, you have three of those. That's probably too many. You don't need three. In fact, I'm not even sure you need one. I think a good evocative title for a location on its own might be enough to tell you what a location is like. So I actually think there are some things that in the book that can be made easier than I describe in the book. And that, that, that's probably one of them. But generally speaking, I think that the other, the other steps from the book hold up. I've been using them now for years. Other people have now been using them for years. I'm not saying it's the end-all be-all of how to run a D&D game. Obviously, definitely people have other ways that they, that they run their games. There are other tricks that people run to, to run their game. But I don't think I've run into anything where I'm like, wow, this just plain doesn't work. Like that, That's something that I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend anymore. So, so those, those are a couple of the things I would change. But generally, I'm still very happy. I, I would not have just done a giant print run and made it part of a major Kickstarter if I didn't think that the material in that book was still really good. I just wouldn't, I, I just stopped selling it. But I, I still think it is very sound. I, I use it and I reference it all the time. Of course, it's my own book, but I don't feel that way about every book that I write. Alexander R says, how do you deal with players that like to optimize away from the fun? My players like to come up with creative ideas that are within the rules of the game that break the encounters. I feel it feels unfair to just tell them, no, that doesn't work. But when they come up with a rule as written way to end encounters before they start by immobilizing creatures before combat starts or sneaking up on monsters, taking a major player off the field immediately every encounter that turns into a slog. I want to reward their ingenuity, but it often doesn't, it often results in a very one-sided fights with little stakes for the players as one or two dangerous monsters are out of commission right away. So there's a, there's a micro answer to this question and a macro, and I'm going to start with the micro one. The situations you describe are, there are, there are rules as written ways that they're supposed to go that I'm not sure you're using. And maybe I'm not understanding the full description, but characters cannot adversely affect a monster before combat begins. Even if you have surprise, even if you have a situation where the characters are definitely advantageous, you cannot ready an action outside of combat, which means the minute that a player describes their character doing a hostile thing, initiative is rolled. And maybe their initiative is high and maybe it is low, but they cannot, generally speaking, the, the way to do it is even if they're going up and tying their shoelaces together, they're doing a sneak. The minute they go over to tie those shoelaces together, initiative is rolled. And maybe the players still have surprise and maybe that gives them a full round of things that they can do before combat really starts, before the monsters really do anything. But a lot of times by rolling initiative, the minute a hostile action takes place, that's going to shift how things go and they're not going to be able to pull off a lot of those same tactics. So that's kind of the micro one is remember that initiative is always rolled immediately upon a hostile action whatever that action is even if the people that you're doing it to are not aware of the action that there is no right there is no such thing as a surprise round there is a surprised condition creatures can be surprised but they still are in initiative order when it's rolled so that's one thing to definitely consider now the the macro answer to this question is what do you do when you have characters that have built a lot of capabilities that are just built to like shut down battles and how does that run and and you're right it is a real trick one thing to do is to is to you know stop and talk to the players about it and and, and ask them like a your fun is important too and if you're not having fun or you feel like the battles that you're running aren't fun in general because of the kind of tactics they're running it might be worth having an adult conversation with them outside of the game outside of character not in the middle of the battle to say you know i'm not having as much fun with these battles because of these circumstances are there ways that we can still do these kinds of things or ways that we can change these abilities so that they aren't quite just shutting down things 
And and you got to kind of look at the powers. There are definitely some, like if they're always using the same thing over and over again, I always polymorph the fighter, you know, the fighter always gets polymorphed into a giant ape and then we always cast banish on whoever thing is and we do the same thing every time. Then you might, there are ways to shake up the battle in order to, to change things up. But you can also have a conversation with your players and describe what's going on. And you can also say like, I'm really just not having as much fun with this campaign. Let's start over and do it differently. And try try a different approach that sort of gets them away. But some players are theory crafters. And some players really like building characters, not because they care about the story, not because they care about the evolution of the story, not because they care about the drama of a battle, but because they want to see their characters do things mechanically. And it's worth having that conversation with the player. If you have a player that you, you love and adore and you want them to stay in your game, but they play that way, you, you need to have that conversation out again. I know you really enjoy doing this, but I would really like to you know, focus more on the story of the game and maybe build some characters that aren't built around these kind of purely optimal solutions that just shut things down. There's also a lot of different ways to run encounters so that you can't just shut things down all the time. Lots and lots of monsters, lots of big monsters. If you've seen my talk about lightning rods, give them monsters that are specifically designed for them to handle this way and then have the rest of the monsters still around so that they have to deal with it. A lot of times when I think about like, oh, there's this one overpowered thing, I just go, well, what about it is overpowered? Well, it does this one thing. What monster can I throw and that deals with that one thing so that they can still do it i think that that i think that that can work well so you know i would definitely i would definitely i would definitely consider lightning rods as an option but also just talk to your players about it you know i always go back just have a conversation with your players you don't have to think about what they're thinking you can ask moonbird says why do npcs not use full caster character classes i often have the feeling that npcs are oversimplified and underpowered versions of character classes of equivalent level if pc level equals number of hit npc hd i have the feeling that feeling they have less abilities as their pc version not to mention no magic items for higher level tiers there's a reason for so first of all this is another one where i have a couple of a couple of different angles to it one is a pc level is not equal to the npc number of hit dice hit dice and, and, and pc level and the npc hit dice are totally separate mechanics you cannot use one to compare it to another the closest you can get is comparing challenge rating to level and that is not equal at all many and you can look at it because you can look at npcs in the back of the monster manual and see what level caster it is for example then see what its challenge rating is and that gives you a rough idea but even that's not accurate because monster challenge rating is based on how much threat that monster has in combat period with whatever abilities which means a level x fighter and a level x mage might have different amounts of damage they do the mage for example does kona cold kona cold is a really big spell so their challenge rating is higher just because of kona cold compared to like a veteran who might be roughly the same level so the answer is npcs don't use levels they don't have levels there is no such thing as a level 12 npc in fifth edition DD the only creatures in the whole universe that have levels are the characters character mechanics are different than creature mechanics so why aren't npcs richer with more class-like stuff and it's because dming is hard and you're running six monsters your players are only rolling one and maybe you're different and you can run really detailed really deep rich monsters with full character seats for everyone i can't i'm i'm too busy i like fire giants who hit twice and do 50 damage you know, I like simple monsters that I can run because I am so busy with everything else. I don't have time to really consider it. And I think that that is true for most people. It's certainly the designers definitely picked that up when they had more complicated monsters in fourth edition and then looked at it when they were doing fifth edition and said, we want monsters to be more streamlined and easier to run. 
And that has been a con relatively continual thing that they've gotten from survey data. They've talked about this. They've gotten it from survey data. And, and I kind of agree that the more complex, I can tell you, I have never run a lich correctly. I'm pretty experienced running D&D games. I've run many liches and I don't think I've ever run one correctly because I forget stuff all the time. I forget about their legendary actions. I forget about their lair actions. I can't keep track of all the spells they have. And if you look at the direction Wizards of the Coast is going with their monster design, and I'm starting to see third party publishers who are embracing this as well that the monsters are getting simpler in their approaches as well that's why they got rid of the spell casting sections and changed up the spell casting sections to monsters because they're too hard to run otherwise so they make monsters act like monsters with just one two or three things because remember they only have one battle they're usually in a battle and then they're dead so unlike a character who has to survive many battles and go through many things the characters are in the foreground they are rich in their detail monsters don't have to be now that said, the good news for you is you can do whatever you want. And if you want to build characters and make them monsters, you can do so. I don't know what their challenge rating will be. That's kind of up to you to figure out. You can also take existing monsters and keep stacking on new abilities, including any character ability you want. You can give them any spell. You can give them any feat. You can give them any class option. You can give them any magic item. All the things that you want, you can do. You're just not going to see it likely in official material. And you're probably not going to see a lot of third-party material. I think there's definitely third-party publishers who publish more certainly more complicated monsters. You, the new MCDM book that's coming out, Flea Monsters, is almost certainly going to have monsters that are more complicated. You might take a look at the NPCs and monsters that are in Level Up 5e's Monstrous Menagerie. They definitely have some. For bigger, higher tier, higher power monsters, check out the work of 2C Gaming. They have their TPK bestiaries and other books where they have very big, very complicated monsters that are really built to bring a powerful tactical challenge to the game. So there's lots of third-party publishers that offer material. But again, it rests in your hands. You can you can do whatever you want. And But I don't think you're going to be successful, and frankly, between you and I, I hope you're not successful, in convincing Wizards of the Coast to make monsters far more complicated than they already are because A, time has told them that most DMs are going to have trouble running those monsters. And I know personally, I do. So... Lorenzo says, I have been GMing for two years and I have a hot take. 5e is too complex for new players and for casual players that only interact in the hobby during the three hours at a table. I started with 5th edition and ran Lost Minds of Fandelver with two players that were new, but they rapidly, they rapidly learned the rules and everything was pretty smooth. Now I'm playing with people that are also new to the hobby and we only play once a month. I started with 5e, but to, to simplify the mechanics, I switched to a homebrew version of ICRPG. That's index card role-playing game. And now I'm thinking of switching to Easy D6. That's another role-playing game that uses D6s. I haven't really played it. I have played, or I have read Index Card RPG. I haven't read Easy D6. I own it. I haven't read it. The reason is that I can't stand someone asking me for the fifth time, which dice is the D20 or the D12, or which is the D10 or the D8. What do they have to roll and hit? What do they roll for damage? In 5e, there are abilities and spells that are a couple, a couple of paragraphs in length, and they can't be bothered to read and understand all the caveats and edge cases, etc. I already ran a version with 5e with group initiative, no feats, combat zones instead of distance of feet, and new players can't play full spellcasters, but to no avail. I feel that the flow of the game halts to a crawl when in combat. Now with one D&D 1, one D&D &D, I think they call it, they want to put mandatory feats at level 1, and I'm feeling like they're adding more complexity to a game that already doesn't have a low bar of entry for someone not involved in the hobby. Any thoughts on this? There's your question right there at the end. Any thoughts? I always have thoughts. 
So yeah, I have, boy, I have thoughts. The funny thing is this is like a direct contradiction to the question I just answered, which is one that is saying that monsters aren't complicated enough. And, and, and Lorenzo is saying that it's, it's the rest of the game overall is, is too complicated. And I think the sweet spot is in the middle. I will argue with you. I don't think it's too complicated because if it was too complicated, it wouldn't be five times more popular than it was ever and more popular than it's ever been in the past. I think fifth edition really is the best version of D&D that's ever been out. And I think it, there's an importance about hitting a certain level of complexity that is engaging enough to players that they get a feeling of system mastery that those players who are having trouble if they're into it enough they will begin to understand that stuff and they it, it rewards them for the experiences that they put into it. it rewards them for remembering the things that they've got they want that complexity i think something that fifth edition did which was really brilliant is putting subclasses at third level. If you look at the third edition of D&D, you really didn't get anything like a subclass until you got prestige classes, which took you many levels and a lot of planning to get. It was really hard to get prestige classes. In fourth edition, their version is they had epic paragon paths and epic destinies, but you only got those at like 10th level and 20th level. So you had to level really high before you got to have make meaningful changes to your characters. By moving those to, to some cases, first, second, and third level, they give a huge range of options for characters that players can chew with. Now, all of them have simple designs. They all have a subclass that is a simple subclass. The default subclass, what I call the default, someone that's in the SRD, are usually very straightforward. Your thief rogue, your champion fighter, your life cleric, they're very straightforward. And, and one thing you can do if you want to simplify your game a little bit, it sounds like you've done some of this, is steer them towards those really simple, those really simple things. There are some other tricks too. You, you mentioned the dice trick. I'm going to pick on the dice trick a little bit. One thing you can do is, is switch to static to static character damage. And you would have to do it. You would have to go through and say, instead of a, a, a long sword being a D8, you get to do five damage. You do five plus whatever you want. And then write it on the sheet. And that way they're just using a D20. So that's something you can do. There's a lot of groups that can that can do stuff like this. And this if I was teaching brand new players and that was an issue, I might I might switch to using static damage on the character side and writing the amount of damage down so that they only have to use a pair of d20s to figure out what they do and then i would still let them crit and i would just have crits do double damage what else what else a lot lot to unpack in this one so the other one is if you are finding that it is easier to run games like index card rpg or easy d6 that can work too there's no reason you have to stick to one game i i have a, a kind of pseudo version of DD that i call dungeons of fate which is actually built off fate but is a very easy very straightforward way to run a simple DD game i will link to dungeons of fate down in the show notes below it's four pages long one page for the dm one page for the player there's lots of other very very lightweight systems that feel like DD that can give people the understanding of a, of a role-playing game but you don't need to you don't need to go into pure DD. the nice thing is you, you want a system like that that can easily go to D&D. But I think if you start with the starter set, you stay at low levels, you know, I think you can get pretty far with with fifth edition. So I would I would argue against the idea that it's too complicated. The last thing you bring up, though, is with one D&D, they're putting mandatory feats at first level. And what's that doing? And I think you could be right. I know that my friends Teos and uh, Teos Abadia and Sean Merwin talked about this on Mastering Dungeons, an excellent podcast. I'll link to that in the show notes below as well. And in their talk, they talked about the fact that like adding feats and making backgrounds more complicated and, and moving a lot of these things around. Is it going to make the game harder to play? Is it going to make it harder? Like we're already having problems with characters being too powerful, highly 
high levels. If you start giving a lot of feats away, what's that going to do? And I have the same worry as well. I'm not that worried because worst case, I'll just stick to fifth edition. But, you know, it's certainly a circumstance and we'll see what they do with it. I do. I know that uh, there's a lot of players who or a lot of DMs who give players a first level feat just to give them something more exciting about their character that they can customize and go with, especially for experienced players. I actually would really like that as a, as a house rule. I love that as an optional rule. Optionally, you can give characters a feat and you can choose from this list. I think that's a fine way to go. I would much rather have it be an optional rule like feats are in general. Feats themselves are an optional rule. No, people tend not to know that, but it's true. And, and, and part of that optional rule is you can start with a feat at level one. The problem is that if you have one that's playing with the optional rule, one that's not, the one that's not is going to be much less more powerful. So you'd have to you'd have to do it at different points. It's an interesting question, but my, my end result is there's no reason you have to stick to any RPG. You can you can pick the one that that works best. If you're trying to get people to get into D and D, you probably want to pick one of the one of the easier versions that can get you more into D and D. One of the things that I offer on the Sly Flourish Patreon is a first level one page version of D and D that actually is fifth edition D&D on a single sheet of paper for, for players. It uses, you, you can actually build a character with it. You don't have to use a pregen. It is pure level one, but it is very easy to play. It uses static monster damage. And you can find that in the Sly Flourish Patreon. It is part of Uncovered Secrets Volume 2. In Uncovered Secrets Volume 2 on the Sly Flourish Patreon, you can find this. I think it's it, I think it's one page front and back. It includes monsters. It includes the rules to play. It includes building characters. It includes all this stuff on like a single. It's called One Sheet D&D. And it's a way to teach D&D to new people. It's meant to be a very easy version of D&D to play. My friends, I want to thank you all for hanging out with me today while we talked on the Lazy D&D Talk Show. I hope you found this show useful. If you did, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter where you get a free adventure generator PDF and a D&D related article sent to your inbox every week. You can become a patron of Sly Flourish, getting access to the Uncovered Secrets Volume 2, which I just described, but also the City of Arches, a whole bunch of exclusive adventures you can join the Sly Flourish Discord server. There's all kinds of things that you get for being a Patreon of Sly Flourish. But most of all, you help me put on shows like this. You can pick up any of my books. I have all three of my books, The Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, The Lazy DM's Companion, and The Lazy DM's Workbook, all in a beautiful offset printed versions that you can buy on the Sly Flourish bookstore. The link is in the show notes below. And of course, you can share this video with your friends, subscribe to my channel, like the video, leave a comment, and let people know how much you enjoy the work that I do. So thank you all so much for coming. Have a great day and get out there and play some D&D.